What's going on, everybody? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome into the Bell Ringer podcast hosted by Sixers Wire of USA Today Sports Media Group. I'm your host, the editor of the Sixers Wire site, Kai Carlin. I'm still a co-host list as uh, Cam Fields left me for a new job with Cleveland.com. So, you know, all shout out to Cam and everything. So I'm kind of bouncing around from co-host to co-host. Today, I've got a special co-host today, my guy, Ben DuBose, who is the managing editor of Rockets Wire. Ben, what's going on, man? Oh, not too much, Kai. Just the normal uh, ins and outs of a coaching search, which I know uh, you're pretty uh, familiar with these days, too. Yeah, like, listen, both of our teams that, we cover, that we're covering right now, man, we're, we're, they're looking for new head coaches. And one of those head coaching candidates, Ben, for Philadelphia is a guy that you are very familiar with, and that's former Houston Rockets coach Mike D'Antoni. His contract expired with the Rockets. Yep. They mutually agreed to part ways. Now, he has kind of popped up as a candidate for the Sixers. And Ben, I mean, I'm not really understanding why on Philadelphia's side, just because this roster and this fit really is like, it's, it's not Mike D'Antoni-esque at all for Philadelphia. Yeah, it's an interesting fit in terms of the exact roster. Now, I do think that it makes some sense when you look at the specific window of, say, like two to three years, I think, which is basically probably all that D'Antoni has left in the NBA, and there's a clear win-now emphasis. I think that with the Sixers makes a lot of sense. In terms of the style, Ben Simmons, I suppose you can say there's some parallels with Russell Westbrook and maybe D'Antoni's experience with Russ uh, pays some dividends if he gets the Philly job because Simmons has similar limitations in regards to obviously not really a consistent three-point shooter by any stretch. It's so interesting, though, the Rockets and the Sixers, how much overlap there's been for really, it feels like three years now, because you go back, or even longer than that, because first it was the Sam Hankey experience, which we know Hankey was a Maury disciple. Right. Then a couple of years ago, you had the Sixers making a run at Maury. There's a report this week that maybe the Sixers try that again, although apparently it's unlikely that Gerald would be interested. Now you have the Sixers reportedly interested in Mike D'Antoni. So there's a lot of overlap between these organizations, certainly within the last decade and definitely within the last uh, two, three years, it's really picked up. The argument that I would say in favor of Mike is that he is a very good coach when it comes to winning now. You look at his last Agreed. four years in Houston, it's hard to argue with the results. They're the only team in the West that has won at least one playoff series in every season. Mm -hmm. They had the best record in the Western Conference by winning percentage over the last four years. Right. And one thing I would say to get anybody on board with Mike that's a little bit hesitant, think how differently you might feel about D'Antoni's legacy in Houston if they had won the 2018 title. Right. Because realistically, from what he could control, they should have. Now, that's not any consolation for Houston fans. Don't get me wrong. But when you look at all the things that that team did, 65 wins, by far the best in the NBA, by far the best in franchise history, mm -hmm. if not for Chris Paul's hamstring, they almost certainly win that series against the Warriors. And then even after Chris Paul's hamstring, you know, they had a 15-point lead in Game 7. They had the historic outlier of an 0-for-27 shooting stretch. Um, Rockets fans will tell you to this day about Scott Foster in that Game 7. There's <laughs> right. so many what-ifs. And they still lost by single digits. So that was a great team. It sucks for the Rockets that they couldn't finish the deal. But in terms of what D'Antoni could control, that was definitely a championship-level team. And so I think in terms of other fans around the NBA – I think you do. You should take a step back and 
think to yourself, hey, would I feel differently if D'Antoni had a ring in 2018? Because in all honesty, he probably should have. That was just kind of the perfect confluence of circumstances that prevented that Rockets team from getting one. As far as the fit with the roster in Philly, which I think is what you were getting at, yeah, that to me is what's so odd. I suppose the one thing that pro D'Antoni people would argue is that both uh, Joel and Al Horford do have three-point range. So it's not like you're taking a more traditional boxy big man. These are guys that can stretch the floor. But yeah, Ben Simmons is not really the quintessential D'Antoni guard. So it's definitely not a carbon copy of James Harden and Chris Paul um, or really the fit that D'Antoni's had over his four years in Houston. And the weakness that I would say with Mike, let me just be clear because I, I like him a lot as a person. I do think the results speak for themselves. The weakness for Mike, above all else, a lot of people are going to say defense. I don't think it's that because they've proven, especially if you invest in a good defensive coach like Jeff Bezdelic, like uh, Elston Turner this year, you can bridge the defensive gap. You know, the Rockets are actually the number one team in the bubble defensively for most of their time in the playoffs. I was just about to bring that up, yeah. Yeah, if you invest on the defensive side of the ball for a quality assistant, I think you can shore up his deficiencies there. So I don't really think that's as fair of a criticism as NBA Twitter tends to give out. The one thing that I do think is fair, and this goes back all the way to his Phoenix days, the Knicks, everything else, he does not do a good job of developing the roster beyond the top eight or nine. The consistent weakness for the Rockets, and we saw it recently with the Daniel House situation, they don't really have guys at the end of the bench that are ready to step in. It is very much a win-now emphasis, and some people will say, well, you know, they should just play those guys more. That's part of it, sure. The guys at the end of the bench don't play as much. He's known for tighter rotations, but part of it, I think, is pretty clearly uh, practice time. He's not, just in general, it's not like a Greg Popovich situation where no matter who comes in, they're going to be ready to go and disciplined to play that system. There has consistently been a drop-off after you get beyond the top eight or so in the rotation. And I think a lot of it is because D'Antoni, especially at this point in his career, he's very much a win-now coach. He's not really a developer. So I would say that to me is the clear weakness. You just don't see a lot of roster development. And it's not that Gerald Morey hasn't tried. You know, you think back to February, there was a ton of excitement when they got uh, Damari Carroll as a buyout. He was supposed right. to be a great fit. Never found his way in. Never had any sort of rhythm. Part of it, yeah, he, he never got a chance to play that much, but he did play some. There were injuries. There's just never, and it's even though the supporting cast has changed over the years, that's been the biggest issue for D'Antoni. Once you get past the top eight, the top nine, I would say really the nine through 15 spots on the roster, there's just not very much in the way of development that has happened. And so what ends up happening each year, you know, they have a top eight that they try and win now with, and they go full throttle, but you don't really have that much organizational development from within. So I think the reason why D'Antoni could fit in Philadelphia is that I think the Sixers are at a point now in kind of their maturity cycle with Simmons and Embiid that they want to win now. That's the yeah. positive is that I think D'Antoni is a really good offensive coach. He's good at maximizing, especially veterans. He can build chemistry. He's respected, all that kind of stuff. That's the good news. The downside, in my opinion, it's not so much style. It's more you're almost going to be putting on hold any sort of long-term development. It's all about the next two or three years. To me, that's sort of the good and the bad of Mike. And so to me, if I'm a Sixers fan, my hesitation would be, you know, do you have enough with the top eight, top nine. Now, of course, there's trades you can make, all that kind of stuff to really um, 
to feel good that you can contend because D'Antoni is not really the type of coach from my experience that's, that's great at, I would say, development from within and kind of creating that pipeline. D'Antoni is more about maximizing the core players that you already have. Well, I feel like everybody just kind of is down on Mike just for what you just mentioned about 2018. Cause I mean, everybody remembers 2018 they had a 3-2 lead on the Warriors and, and like they let it go. And I feel like that's why that kind of plays into the part that a lot of people are just kind of so down on Mike D'Antoni. Yeah. And also the tw- uh, 2019, when they um, they were down 3-2 against the, uh, the Warriors, they returned home, Golden State didn't have Durant, and Golden State still finished them off. So I still feel, I feel like a lot of people are just kind of hesitant on that. But to your point, Ben, Houston has been one of the top teams in the Western Conference for the last four years. And we're talking about the Western Conference where everybody is just kind of like, oh, the West is so great. And the Rockets were really at the top of the West past four years if we're, if we're talking, you know, um, the win percentage that you were just mentioning. The, yeah. reason why, the reason why it's so, like, strange to really see D'Antoni so interested and, and Philadelphia so interested in D'Antoni is because of Joel Embiid and Al Horford. Now, I know right. you mentioned that they both can shoot three-pointers, but neither of them are, you know, like a Robert Covington or a, a P.J. Exactly. from three-point yeah. range. So I feel like a lot of people are, like, really be like, what the hell? Like, what the hell is he really going to do with this roster? Now, I really – I, I wrote something the other day on three reasons why D'Antoni would kind of be their best fit. One was innovation, just because, I mean, Mike, obviously, he's pretty much the godfather of pace and space in the NBA today. And another, yeah. one, another one is his handling of stars with Ben and Joel. Obviously, he's handled a guy like James Harden, who is a top five player in this league. And, you know, everything that James Harden can do, he managed him pretty well. And then also another one I really thought of was, do you think D'Antoni would come in here look at Elton Brand and the rest of the front office and be like, hey, listen, this, this roster is not going to win in 2020 offensively. Do you feel like Mike would kind of put his stamp uh, on the Sixers roster if he were to come over here? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question because I could see it working with one of Embiid right. and Horford. Obviously, Embiid's the clear uh, star there, but it is a little bit tough to, for me to envision both of those guys working in a D'Antoni offense. I know they had the five out this year, but, you know, let's, let's give some credit to what D'Antoni did in his first three and a half years. When Clint Capella, he's not a three-point guy by any stretch of the imagination, yet he was a very good center for D'Antoni for three and a half years. The right. five out that everyone's talking about now, and that was just as much of a Gerald Morey strategy as anything, that was just the last half year of the final season of D'Antoni in Houston. For the most part, they played with Capella, they played with Nene as the backup, they played fairly traditionally, and those teams that really had their best shot, you mentioned 2019, but especially 2018, they had a five out there most of the time. So it's not as if he can't do it. However, I do kind of wonder if you can have two of those guys. Now, I know... Well, I mean, Horford can shoot threes. The, the issue with Al, he has a little bit of a slow release, and that's something that can be an issue in the D'Antoni system. Mm-hmm. Um, but you look at the fours alongside Capella. They first had Ryan Anderson before he ended up kind of getting washed a little bit. Um, yeah, Ryan Anderson, they, what happened to him? <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's pretty crazy how he just fell off the map because the first year of D'Antoni in Houston, yeah, he was a really good player, and then it fell off really quickly. Uh, after that, you had P.J. Tucker at the four before he was at the five. So – you can play with a five. It's tough to see playing with two conventional bigs. So I wouldn't go as far as to say that, well, this is the way you've got to play a Robert Covington and a PJ Tucker front line. But I do wonder if he might push back a little bit on, you know, having a traditional center and a traditional power forward, right. just because that's a little bit much for how he wants to play. And then of course it goes into, well, what are the trade possibilities for Elton brand in the front office, you know, and they have to figure out if that's something that, um, that they can work. As far as, you know, the broader picture, 
one thing that I think we should point out when it comes to when it comes to Mike. So I mentioned that um, Capella and Nene, he doesn't get credit enough for working with um, with those two guys. The other thing is that Houston, my theory on what's gone wrong, because I think what rubs people the wrong way about the Rockets, it's not just the playing style. It's that the Rockets have these games occasionally in the playoffs where it looks like they've checked out. I think that's yeah. what kind of rubs a lot of people that aren't in Houston the wrong way. We saw it in game four against the Lakers where they largely just looked disinterested. It's not just that they lose, it's how they lose. And I think that just sort of gives people the wrong impression. I think Mike D'Antoni might actually be a little bit better off uh, without Daryl Morey. I think one of the problems they've run into in Houston, this is just me speaking anecdotally, but between D'Antoni, Daryl Morey, and James Harden, there has been so much alignment. There's basically one way to play in terms of, you know, at a very broad level, the threes, free throws, and layups philosophy. But there is so much alignment between those three that when plan A doesn't work, what do they do? They keep trying plan A. And eventually, you know, you can just see it. When it doesn't work, there hasn't been much in the way of adjustments. They just sort of get frustrated and throw up their hands. That's why I think, you know, my theory is that D'Antoni might be a better coach if you have both a roster and a front office that maybe challenges him a little bit, not makes him do it completely differently. But I just feel like some of the really bad examples in Houston, the games that just sort of sour people on the Rockets experience to where even when you look at the overall results, and it's hard to argue that they haven't had a great four-year stretch, but there's just these games, these moments that people have a tough time getting out of their memory Right. I think some of that is due to the fact that Houston had just really a staggering degree of alignment. And I think there's something to be said for, you know, some degree of tension being good and it bringing out sort of the competitiveness. And to me, that's something that I think could happen in Philly that might work out a lot better for Daryl or for, uh, for Mike, excuse me, being away from Daryl, being away from James Harden, not that those guys aren't great at what they do, but right. I just think sometimes some of the, the things that have really gone wrong, especially the last couple of years when the roster has started to age and they don't obviously have the 65 win juggernaut that they did a couple of years ago in terms of just how overwhelming the talent is, then I think the D'Antoni system might be a little bit better if not just a different roster, but you don't have as rigid an approach as what's been in Houston the last few years. Well, I feel like everybody, when, it, when they look at the Philadelphia roster, they, everybody always tries to break up uh, Ben and Joel, when in reality, if you just kind of put some shooting around Ben and Joel, like you did in 2018 uh, with J.J. Redick and, mm-hmm. you know, Robert Covington and Dario Sharge and guys like that, and then in 2019 when you had Jimmy Butler plus Tobias Harris and Redick, uh, the offense really flowed really well. But, like, I feel like if D'Antoni were to come in here and look at Elton Brand and be like, listen, you always say you want to compliment Ben and Joel better. Mm-hmm. You need to go out and get some shooting. But it really just seems like Elton made these moves because he's, like, stuck in, like, 2005 or, or something, and he thinks that, like, the twin tower lineup was still yeah. working his game, right? Like, that's what it seems like. Yeah. So to that point of what you were saying about Mike and Daryl and, like, uh, how challenging Mike do you do you feel like Elton will kind of challenge Mike and be like, hey, I'm, this is how we're going to play, and uh, this is the roster we have, and I want you to make it work? I feel like at least to some degree it's inevitable just because how much can you really change? I mean, I know they'll make a few moves 
Philly's in the kind of spot where it's hard to justify staying pat. So there yeah. are going to be changes no matter what. With that said, you're talking about the absence of shooting. How much can they really do in one off season? How much right. can you radically transform the roster with most of these guys under contract? I understand that, you know, especially if you're willing to spend your exceptions, there are trades, there are things that you can do, but I just don't see the Philly roster sort of uh, being overhauled to the extent that D'Antoni has similar personnel to what he did in Houston. So I think it's one of those things, just based on the roster, he's going to have no choice if he were to take the Philly job to sort of adapt. And it, it, you know, it would be interesting because, you know, one of the big um, criticisms on Rockets Twitter of Mike D'Antoni, and I still to this day don't know how much I uh, buy into it, so every year they lead the NBA in three-pointers per game. Like this year right. was some ridiculous. So they averaged almost 50 attempts per game, which is just staggering. Yeah. Yet their percentage in terms of accuracy is in the middle to back of the pack. And so a lot of people have questioned the logic of, well, you know, they do all this three-point shooting, but outside of probably uh, Ben McLemore, they don't really have any elite shooters. Sharp shooters. Yeah, and, and I guess we should call James Harden an elite shooter as well because clearly when he's open, he is. It's just the volume. He has to take so many that he usually shoots around 36%. So where I'm going with that is that D'Antoni, because the volume is so high, it's tough to truly gauge the accuracy of the shooters because if you're taking far more threes, you're going to inherently, especially when some of them are a little bit better contested, make a lower percentage than in a lot of other systems around the NBA. So in terms of the mic system, it's not just about the shooting efficiency. It's also about the numbers. And so that to me is going to be really interesting. If Mike were to take the Philly job in terms of how they look at the roster, I think a lot of people will say, okay, we need a shooter with X percent. And that's really not what fits with Mike. It's not just about the raw percentage. It's also about do you have a quick release? That's really important because to take threes at the um, extent that they want to, it's really difficult if you have sort of a slow windup, which is what I think of with uh, Al Horford a little bit. Yeah. Because even if you make a decent clip of them, it's not really going to work because you can't fire off the shot enough for that so-called math advantage. That's what they call it or, or have in Houston when, mm -hmm. you know, if you take 20 more three-pointers than your opponent, then even if they're going to out-rebound you and do some other things, then there's a pretty big headwind that they're going to have to overcome to win the game. Well, it's not just about the shooters. It's also about the, their capability of scaling it up and doing it at volume. So to me, that's sort of the question that when you talk about filling the roster out, if the Sixers end up hiring him, that's going to be really interesting. I think people are just going to look at the raw numbers, and it's not just that. It's also how quick does this guy get his threes off and how comfortable is he potentially shooting, you know, seven, eight threes in 25 minutes if that's what a game, you know, a given game gives him the opportunity to do. So that's just sort of, you know, it goes a lot deeper than that. But that's one of the considerations, I think, when you when you have to put the roster together for MDA. Now, you just mentioned like how they uh, they call it, I guess, math, math ball or, or, or math whatever. advantage. Yeah, math advantage. OK, now Elton Brand at the, at the end of the season, kind of he kept harping on the fact that he wanted to get, quote unquote, more basketball minds into the front office. Yeah, I, I guess because um, the Sixers have always been a team that in the, at least recently, and I guess it's kind of started under Hinky that they have focused more on uh, analytics. So yeah. 
I mean, like, do you do like, I feel like D'Antoni is a guy who kind of fits both molds. He's a guy who obviously focuses on the math and the numbers and the numbers say this on three point shots and free throws layups, but he's also a, a guy, a, a basketball like savant at, at least, at least when yeah. I look at him, because I mean, he went, he literally started off in Phoenix and he took the Suns, And I think, I think they were like one of the worst teams in the league when he took over. They obviously they brought in Steve Nash and they went to the Western conference finals Obviously, he had struggles with the Knicks because everybody struggles with the Knicks. But, yeah. And then, and then obviously, like, he had a, a, a run of success in Houston. So when you hear Elton say, I want more basketball minds in here, do you think Mike fits that mold? Yeah, definitely. I, I do think he fits with that. I think a lot of people, and you were alluding to this, throw him too much into sort of the analytics bucket, which he does incorporate. But right. his system isn't just about numbers. It's not just about a certain formula, the way that it gets portrayed because of the end result. They talk about the math advantage of these threes and people tend to oversimplify that. At its root, what Mike D'Antoni is about, and this goes all the way back to Steve Nash in the Phoenix days, it's about freedom. I think more than anything else, what Mike D'Antoni would bring to an organization, athletes and especially guards at the NBA level, they want to play for him. They see that his offenses gives them space to operate. They basically have free reign as shooters. They get to create. He is why James Harden went from, well, he was already a all-star level player to a perennial MVP candidate. His first year in Houston, Harden averaged more than 11 assists per game. If you remember before that, people were mocking the idea when Tony came in and said, we're going to make James Harden the point guard. People were mocking right. it. And he went out there and executed beautifully, and he took the leap from just a regular all-star to a perennial MVP guy under D'Antoni. Chris Paul wanted to come to Houston. When Russell Westbrook came to Houston, one of the motivating factors, he said it, was Mike D'Antoni. Especially guards, but I would say athletes, playmakers in general, the system plays to their skill sets. Guys want to play for Mike D'Antoni because of the freedom that he gives them, because of the confidence that he instills in them. So to me, that's one of the bigger perks that people aren't talking about enough. Players around the league want to play for Mike D'Antoni. This is a guy that makes your organization more attractive. And so as I see it, it always gets oversimplified into, oh, he shoots a lot of threes and it's the small ball and all that kind of stuff. No, at its core, it's about the freedom. It's about giving guys room to operate. And so I think that's what for Philly would be really, really intriguing because if there are bigger moves that need to be made, be it this summer, be it at the trade deadline, D'Antoni is the kind of coach that does give you a competitive advantage. NBA players, you look at some of his quotes. I did a story on Rockets Wire. P.J. Tucker during the playoffs just raved about him as one of the best coaches that he's ever had. NBA players will go to bat for that guy in a heartbeat. And so that, to me, is sort of at the core, and it pushes back because not all NBA players are in love with analytics. We both know this. We've seen a lot of guys push back on it. And so the reason they love Mike isn't about the analytics. It's not about, well, this system, because of the math, we know is advantageous to us. No, they right. like Mike D'Antoni because of his personality, his go with the flow, his ability to give guys just the freedom and the confidence to go out and execute as they see fit. And that can be pretty powerful in, in the NBA, especially in the NBA where a lot of these coaches are very inside the box. You tend to see a lot of coaches in the NBA that want to be very hands-on, very controlling. D'Antoni's not really like that. What D'Antoni is really about is 
player empowerment. He wants to give these guys, and that's why he works with contenders a lot more than rebuilding teams, because of course I mentioned player development earlier is sort of a weakness. But when you have guys that are established, guys that are already good, like James Harden, like Chris Paul, like Russell Westbrook, like in the case of Philly, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, I think the philosophy would be to go out there and build their confidence, to go out there and give them a lot more trust. And of course, that also extends to anybody they might try and acquire in the offseason. So to me, that's one of the underrated uh, things of Mike D'Antoni, his advantages is that he positions you very well in terms of the attractiveness of the organization. I think people want to play for him. That's important. And, you know, one thing I think we should point out, by the way, about the Rockets, it's becoming very clear. The Rockets wanted to keep Mike D'Antoni. There was a lot of talk nationally in the media about the Rockets maybe wanting to move on no matter what because, you know, they've gotten knocked out in the second round the last two years in the playoffs. But Gerald Morey, I mean, there's been multiple reports this week. He was upset when D'Antoni told him he wasn't going to return. Uh, Lead beat writer for the Houston Chronicle, Jonathan Fagan, reported yesterday the Rockets fully intended to bring him back. Uh, They just, you know, there were a lot of hard feelings because last offseason they tried to get an extension of at least one year, but – they couldn't come to financial terms, and there seems to be some bad blood between Houston ownership, Tillman Fertitta, and then Mike D'Antoni and his agent. That camp feels like that was never really uh, fully satisfied on D'Antoni's end. So right. the Rockets wanted to bring him back. I mean, Gerald Morey's respect is one of the best GMs in the game, and they wanted to bring D'Antoni back. So to me, that's a pretty strong case for why I think, you know, other teams around the league would be smart to have interest. We're kind of done with D'Antoni. We kind of pretty much covered – everything that you know pretty much yeah. comes with him when it comes to Philadelphia now Daryl Morey I mean like there's probably zero chance of him leaving Houston let's kind of touch on him real quick because uh 76ers beat writer over the Philadelphia Inquirer uh Keith Pompey he reported that the Sixers had interest in Daryl Morey but he also said there's probably very little chance that he comes over to uh Philadelphia so let, let's just kind of play hypotheticals here if Daryl yeah. Morey if Daryl Morey were to leave Houston and were to go to Philadelphia what kind of impact do you think he would have? That would be fascinating. And, you know, I think it's unlikely because after that 2018 season that we were talking about earlier, the Rockets gave Gerald a pretty big extension that runs out to like 2023, 2024. So he's making a lot of money. He's tied in for five years. So that's why I doubt he leaves. The only reason why I wouldn't rule it out, there have been reports that when the Sixers pursued him in 2018, and that was coming off that 65-win season, apparently it went a little bit further down the road than a lot of people realize. So maybe there is some intrigue between Daryl and Philadelphia. Now maybe, you know, the counter to that, maybe Daryl was sort of using the Sixers to get that contract extension, which he ultimately got. So maybe that's less likely this time. I don't know. And with that said, would I rule it out? No, absolutely not. Um... With Daryl, boy, what he is to me, he is the most aggressive GM in the NBA. And I think, I don't know that he would mortgage the future, but I think, you know, the deal they did for Russell Westbrook a year ago, and time will tell if it was a smart decision, but to give up the two future first and the pick swaps to go with it, you know, that sort of shows you what Daryl Morey is about. He's all about maximizing the present with, these two stars and of course in the case of philly it'd be uh, ben and joel so i think daryl would be much less balanced than what you guys might be used to i think daryl would be much more of an all-in philosophy that's just what he does when he's got two stars he's not really about uh tanking and rebuilding he's much more about maximizing the present 
So right. I think from that standpoint, he would definitely be a boost to short-term chances, I think, because he's obviously a really good GM, but there would be a trade-off with that. And then the other thing that I wonder, too, you know, as I said earlier, even though they get along great, part of me wonders in Houston if there might have been too much alignment between Daryl and Mike. And so from that standpoint, I'm kind of curious to see what Mike could do away from Daryl. So just, you know, aside from my own biases, I think Daryl's a really good GM. Of course, I'd like to see him stay in Houston. He's a great guy, all that sort of stuff. Just selfishly as an NBA fan, I would like to see Mike away from Daryl and also for that matter, Daryl away from Mike, because I do think sometimes there's a little bit too much alignment. So it's an interesting counter. I think in terms of roster building, he's one of the best in the NBA. He's insanely creative. You know, one thing that Daryl doesn't get enough credit for, he was the first guy that came up with the idea of reverse protection on draft picks. Think back to um, 2012, before they traded for Harden, they traded Kyle Lowry to Toronto. He came up with this concept that at the time was unheard of to where basically they protected it to where the pick was almost guaranteed to be a lottery pick because Houston couldn't get it if it was outside of the top 15. Right. And so because of that, that pick ended up being the linchpin to the, uh, the Harden trade because Oklahoma City knew that, hey, this is going to be a lottery pick no matter what because of the reverse protection on it. So that's just one example. He does stuff like that. He is creative. He does all of those things. He's a really good GM. Number one, I doubt he leaves. And then secondly, you know, just philosophically, I feel like the, the Maury D'Antoni era, it's been there, done that. We sort of know what that is. I think just from the standpoint of being an NBA fan, I kind of want to see Mike outside of Daryl and see what happens if you combine Mike with, you know, a more traditional front office like what's in Philadelphia now. Yeah, it would definitely be something that's very interesting. Now, the Sixers are apparently they're looking into hiring a president of basketball operations. That's something that they really have not uh, had last couple of years. They kind of were like, okay, we're just going to have Elton sign off on everything. And Elton also mentioned that the collaborative days really didn't work with, uh, with him or really with the team as a whole very well this year, um, which there have been reports coming out, uh, flying out of the Sixers front office. One was about Scott O'Neill, um, the, the team CEO, wanting to get involved in basketball decisions. And then there's obviously the Alex Rucker and Ned Cohen factor as well, holdovers from the, uh, the Brian Colangelo era that are really, they're the guys that are kind of really more into the uh, the analytics thing while Elton wants more of a uh, basketball mindset type of thing. So it's going to be really interesting how, how this all plays out. I guess like one final question for, for you, Ben, before we kind of end this off would be, if Daryl were to leave Houston and come to the Sixers, would he look at Al Horford and Joel Embiid or, or, in, or even Joel and Ben Simmons and be like, all right, one of y'all's got to go. One of you guys is leaving. That's a good question. What's interesting is that Maury has liked Horford in the past. When Horford was a free agent in 2016, the Rockets put a big priority on him. They met with him night one. They really like his defense. So historically, it's a guy that I think Daryl actually really likes. With that said, it's so tough for me to see a scenario in which Daryl Maury and Mike D'Antoni, especially if they were together, play a conventional four and a conventional five. I just have right. a really tough time seeing it. I can see one of them. Again, they had a lot of success with Clint Capella. But yeah, two what I consider boxy guys by NBA standards, that's tough to see. Now, I do think that they had a lot of success with Westbrook. I think a lot of people are sort of down on Russell Westbrook based on the playoff run. I think what people are underrate, 
underrating with Russ is that he had COVID in July, so he was late to training camp. And then literally three days into getting back out on the court, he strained his quad. And when he came back right. to the playoffs, he was just not the same guy. So between not really having reps in training camp and not really having reps in the seeding games, I don't know that he was actively hurt. I've seen some people say, well, you know, he still had athleticism. Yeah, but it's not just that. It's about the rust factor. So I think everybody's sort of down on Russ at the moment based on how the playoff run went. But if you look at the season as a whole, especially before the COVID hiatus in March, he was playing at an insane level. You could argue like January until early March, he was almost at, you know, MVP in terms of his numbers relative to a couple of years ago. So I guess where I'm going with that is with both Daryl and with Mike, I think that proved pretty clearly that even if a guard can't shoot threes, which, of course, we know what the Ben Simmons historical limitations are, you can still win with that. I think they proved with Russ that when he's right, they can still have a lot of success with him. Uh, And when they moved to that five-out system, of course, that was in part based on kind of spreading the floor, opening up those driving lanes, so that the fact that he was kind of a liability from three-point range wasn't um, nearly as pronounced as it might be in other circumstances. So I'm not so worried about Ben and the shooting thing. I think some will say, well, you know, they want to shoot all these threes. How does that fit? No, no, no. I think they proved with Russ that they can make that work. However, with Horford and Embiid, yeah, that's a fair question. I won't say it's 100% that they'd want to break it up because I do know that Maury has liked Horford in the past, but I just can't really see it. Over four years in Houston – they always wanted to, wanted to stretch four this year. They wanted to stretch five. It's tough for me to see them playing two conventional types. So I do think at a bare minimum, they would probably want to break up that duo. He's Ben DeBose, managing editor of Rockets Wire. Ben, tell everybody where they can follow you at on the social medias, man. Yep, pretty easy. Uh, ben DuBose on Twitter and also uh, the Rockets Wire on Twitter is the handle for the site. And then you can also check out all of Ben's stuff over at RocketsWire.com, our sister site from Sixers Wire. Ben, Thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your day to join with us. We'll talk to you later, man. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening in to the Bell Ringer podcast. We're out. We'll see you guys next time.